warning, this episode of the Important Cinema Club contains discussion of violence against animals, people. But it's not the duty of the artist to sanitize reality, but rather to simply reflect it. Boo! (laughs) Hello, my name is Justin the Clue, and I'm here today with... Will Sloan. And you're listening to the Important Cinema Club. And today, we're talking about Mondo movies. What are Mondo movies, Will? Mondo movies are shockumentaries featuring strange rituals from around the world. Uh, I mean, look. It's not just your everyday thing, is it? Let's face it. What do you go to Mondo movies for? You You want to see people die. You want to see people die. You want to see animals die. So this was a topic that I proposed that Justin was not thrilled about. But I'm going to I'm going to say why I proposed it, which is because I'm I'm a sadist. I like to watch things die. (laughs) That's right. I first learned about Mondo movies in a book called Sleazoid Express. Oh, a great book. Terrific book about New York grindhouse cinema uh, by Bill Landis and Michelle Clifford. And it had a whole chapter on Mondo movies, a genre that sort of started in earnest in 1962 with a movie called Mondo Cane, although there's kind of a long lineage of movies. Yeah, um, people would go around uh, with a film like Mom and Dad, which was advertised as a sex education or sex hygiene film. And the only reason they were showing is that you could see someone give birth on screen. And that was the only legal way that you could show nudity at some time. Mm -hmm, Exactly. So it would get shown from town to town and people would line up, I guess, by the prospect of seeing a vagina, (laughs) even though it had a baby coming through it. (laughs) But I mean, you can even stretch it as far back as like Thomas Edison's the electrocution of an elephant. You're seeing deaths on screen, something that you wouldn't usually see in your day to day. But reading about these films and really the genre after Mondo Cane can be traced back to two Italian filmmakers, Gualtiero Giacopetti and Franco Prosperi. Two directors that actually didn't make that many films, but their imprint is so deep that they defined everything that would come after them. And the movies they made... And the fact that they spawned an entire genre of these kinds of movies and the fact that these movies captured such atrocities always fascinated me. And I read this chapter like over and over again, almost like, how can these movies exist? So it was more like a moral quandary that you had with kind these of. movies? A moral quandary. You weren't like, I want to see this. It was more, how can these movies be watched by people. Yeah, how can they exist? How did how did we get to the point where these movies got made? And at Suspect Video, the late great Suspect Video, uh, which I shed a tear even thinking about, I used to always be drawn to the Mondo section. Would you rent movies from it though? I eventually did go through a Mondo phase and there were definitely there, there were <laughs> Mondo will. There were movies that it took me years to work up the courage to watch like Faces of Death. And I've even I'm still fascinated by the genre. I think it's a genre that is more interesting to think about and talk about than it is to watch in most cases. But uh, I have a Mondo Kane poster up in my apartment right now, <laughs> oh, which, <man>. which <laughs> the lady love. Yeah, I just want to make sure I can't sustain a relationship, you know? <laughs> uh, so we should point out that Jacopetti and Prosperi, I feel like they were filmmakers that also stumbled in at the right time. Like someone was going to do this. And they happened to be the ones to jump right on it. And what they had that maybe other imitators before did not, like there was also some nature documentaries that came out about people like suffering Mm. uh, on a mountain hike and stuff. I don't Mm. remember what the title is. Yeah, And there were any number of like just white coders. Exactly. Is that they knew how to present these images. They stunningly talented stylists. But what that means is that to get this style on screen, 
they have to be exploiting what they're filming mm -hmm. because they cannot get the shots that they get just off the cuff like they catch it. They have to set these things up to be filmed. I mean, that's not necessarily the case in Mondo Kane, which was nominated for an Academy Award the year it came out. For best song, for the uh, song More by, what's his name, Ritz Orlani? Uh, Ritz Ortolandi. I'm yes. probably saying that last name wrong, who is a composer who is most famous for his Mondo scores, but he also wrote the score to Cannibal Holocaust <laughs> and like a thousand other Italian films. And they're just such lush orchestral pieces. Beautiful. And also Mondo Kane was in the official competition at Cannes that year, which is unthinkable. And it was a significant box office success around the world. Now, I don't like Mondo Kane. I think it's boring. <laughs> I don't really like it either, but I like the poster I have because it's funny. <laughs> and the score is good. Yeah. So Mondo Kane, I don't even know how to describe it. Well, well it's, it's, it's showing these images of like savage life in other places in the world and contrasting them to the modern day as we know it. And are we really that modern compared to the savages? So the film opens with a rather dated sequence, I think, of the Italian star Rosano Brazzi, who the movie positions as the new Valentino. Remember Rosano Brazzi? <laughs> it, it shows uh, him being surrounded by all sorts of adoring female fans, you know, chasing him, tearing off his clothes. And In it, like a almost Benny Hill style sequence. <laughs> and it contrasts that to native mating rituals. And there, there will be scenes of classy aristocrats uh, eating ants in France or something. Or you'll see uh, grueling scenes like a goose being force fed to make... Uh, foie gras contrasted to, you know, tribesmen exactly, killing right. animals. Or there's another uh, memorable scene where you see a Samoan woman becomes eligible for marriage if she's 300 pounds. And then it cuts to dumb Westerners in a gym. Trying to lose weight and yeah. stuff like that. It's pretty simple minded, I would say. And it has a pretty... This is another thing that attracted me to the Mondo movies or kind of repelled and attracted me is the bleak and rather flippant outlook they had on the world. Jacopetti and Prosperi kind of thumbing the nose, their nose at the audience, being like, yeah, you're all idiots, and you want to see this? Now, we should talk about Jacopetti and Prosperi a little bit, because Prosperi was kind of like a workman-like guy. He wrote comic books, and he did other stuff before Jacopetti kind of brought him on board to direct his films. And Jacopetti is mostly known because he's a piece of shit as a human being. Jacopetti was a journalist, uh, a, a photographer, developed a reputation for became, being able to capture really ugly and grotesque images. And, oh, I thought you were going to say he was famous for something else. Well, he was famous for something else, which is, let, let's say he was a bit of a jet setter, a bit of a swinging oh, 60s kind of guy. Yeah, he was a pedophile, a bit right? Of a guy who likes to have sex with children. And in fact, during the making of Mondo Kane, he was arrested in a hotel with uh, two prostitutes aged 10 and 11 oh and, and jailed for three months. And when when asked about it, he said, yeah, they were prostitutes and I paid them for their services. Yeah, That's I didn't the, do anything wrong. And he basically used these movies as uh, excuses for sex tourism. Jacopetti was actually documented in a film called The Wild Eye, which is a fictional motion picture about a crew of people making a Mondo style documentary, which has the interesting uh, side note of being directed by the third member who directed the original Mondo Kane, Paolo Cavera, who never went on to direct any more Mondo documentaries with the duo. The Wild Eye is a fiction film. It kind of has a Jacopetti-like director in it, who's directing a Mondo Kane-like film. Uh, but it's 
extremely thinly veiled. There's a scene where he, you know, the the character is presented as just being totally sadistic and not only making these images possible, staging these images, but relishing in the humiliation of the people. So we see there's a, a sultan in. I think Hong Kong or somewhere who's been reduced to poverty and he makes the Sultan eat butterflies on camera and he delights in it or he tries to get a monk to light himself on fire to protest the Vietnam War, which actually is something that happens in Mondo Kane too. The the film captures a, a self-immolating monk and the movie climaxes with the Jacopetti-like director uh, filming a terrorist attack on a nightclub that he's been tipped off in advance for. And this is a movie that you don't need to see. Will summing it up, you got the whole idea right I, there. I watched it this week because I kind of always wanted to see it because it almost seemed like... Too, too good to be true. Yeah, too good <laughs> yeah. to be true. And it was. The minute you you hear of it, you hear the premise, you've got everything there is to it. But it's interesting that it, ex- it exists. Especially that it was directed by someone that worked with Jacopetti. Yeah. I mean, because you also have stuff like Cannibal Holocaust, which deals with that same kind of like, it's a Mondo crew making a film. Yeah, or um, Larry Cohen's uh, Return to Salem's Lot. <laughs> Also, uh, a classic film, but that also starts with Michael Moriarty as like a a Mondo style filmmaker. Yeah, it does, who yes. like stages a death on camera or something. So I think that if they had maybe only made Mondo Kane, it wouldn't be remembered as much. It would just be remembered as kind of a novelty, exactly. Yeah. But then they went and made their opus. Well. I would say their second opus. They made two opuses. Oh my god. So they followed Mondo Kane with Mondo Kane 2, which is just more of the same, but a little bit more gruesome. Yeah. Because they're starting to have to, you know, compete with the other, like, rip-off artists that well, are coming out. this is fascinating. They spawned a whole subgenre of, like, there was Mondo Bellardo, there was Mondo Freudo, Mondo Bizarro. Most of these movies were shot by exploitation guys in Hollywood and were entirely faked. Yes. So you'll see, like, you know, a, a slave trade auction that's supposedly in the Middle East, but actually, you know, they just shot it in Bronson Canyon. <laughs> well, even, like, the famed Faces of Death is almost 95% fake. Yeah. Uh, like, a guy gets electrocuted, fake. Eating monkey brains, fake. Okay, we'll get to Faces of Death pretty soon. But first, we're gonna talk about Goodbye Africa. Also known as Africa Adio. Also known as Africa Blood and Guts. (laughs) So this movie was shot over three years during the period when uh, Africa, the continent, was becoming independent and Britain was leaving its colonies behind. The movie essentially has the premise that the colonizers left too soon and uh the savages know. took over I, I don't know how to how to how to put it in a yeah, n- right there <laughs> yeah. that's, that's what they're saying <laughs> that's it's a racist piece of shit <laughs> okay so i watched this movie today J- justin uh, also watched it today for the first time in uh i hadn't seen it in i think seven i never years. seen it you never seen it no because i watched goodbye uncle tom i got it we'll talk about that a little bit later w- what a movie i mean it's it's utterly disgusting and it's Um, insane how beautiful everything looks breathtaking like there's a shot of the camera dollying across an abandoned house that the um colonists left and it lands on like a for sale sign and then a tractor goes and picks up that for sale sign and you see all the ground being ripped out and it's all done in one take and who is driving the tractor a black african Uh, and there's a shot before that of one of the white family's homes has been repossessed and the white family looks on helplessly as the africans help themselves to their bed and their furniture and their clothes 
so the thesis of the movie is also that uh, because there was no control, there was no central government, all the national parks were open to any pillagers and looters and poachers. So there are all these scenes that, of course, Jacopetti and Prosperi totally collaborated in. And Where you see possible. animals just killed on screen, like speared by a hundred spears stumbling around. There's a scene where they're like knocking over zebras with two trucks with a rope between them mm-hmm. and they're just going and you just see one long take of the zebras all falling over. Just awful, awful but, stuff. But that zebra scene, stunning. I mean, it's, it's, <laughs> but, but no, it's the way it's filmed. It is unbelievably beautiful and it's horrible. There's another scene where a bunch of African tribesmen are, you know, throwing spears at, what is it? A hippo in a, a mud pond or something, which is also just incredibly arresting many scenes of you know uh horses uh just being killed stampeding uh, an elephant gets cut open and they take out the elephant's baby afterwards uh, yeah yeah it's real gross stuff shot in the most picturesque cinematic like we did 30 takes of this to just get right to get the rack focus to like the elephant's dead eye so in between all this i mean uh if you were going to make a defense of the movie and defenses have been proffered over the years uh Oh, they just captured it, right? Like, it was happening anyway. <laughs> well, yeah, fuck you. Well, yeah, but I, I mean, there's there was a lot of controversy at the time. In fact, Jacopetti was tried on for collaborating on a murder. Yeah, because uh, supposedly uh, they were going to film an execution, and he wasn't able to get there on time, so he got them to just delay it by one day. I think he was acquitted on that charge. I don't know if they were able to prove it or not. All they have to do is show this movie, and he should have been thrown right in jail. Like The defense of the movie, if there is one, is it captures all this amazing Civil War footage. Yes. There uh, is some off-the-cuff, like they're driving and they're getting attacked by people, and that is obviously not staged. Yeah. But, oh, man, everything else. But so the Like, mo- there's a court case where there's all these dramatic angles of people being sentenced to, like, hard labor for life. And you know those people were probably sentenced. And Jacopetti was, like, forcing them to get the right angles yeah. in this most important moment of their life just for some dramatic flair on camera. So the movie has the theory that, you know, the blacks have taken over, the, the, con- the country's in panic. A few noble Anglo-Saxon organizations like uh, the World Wildlife foundation or trying to hold things together but there is a country in africa that's you know still still holding it together still have it on earth and guess what country it is that's right it's south africa where we see uh, a five minute montage of women on trampolines beautiful blonde white women surfing and trampolining and And this follows beautiful resort town 30 minutes of just animals being killed (laughs) yeah like so you know you get you get some of the sugar you get some of the spice you mix it up together this shows you how manipulative the film is because after 30 minutes of animals being killed you're like oh finally some nice looking people trampolining and then it throws you right back in the muck with this scene of uh, it, 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 there's a smash cut to a bunch of tribes women dancing for cameras and you know trying on American women's yeah. clothes uh, to show that oh look at these look at these silly tribes people they want to be like Americans but they just can't Ugh. because they're not evolved enough like that's the thesis of the movie yeah it's a terrible awful thesis uh, of a film that is two hours and 20 minutes I was not bored. Well, it was brutal. <laughs> it was just brutal watching this. And it's, uh, I, it's yeah. What, what do you even say? It's so when I heard about these like Mondo movies and stuff like that, I had no interest in seeing them. I was like, why would I watch that? 
Like, I know uh, it's out there. Are you, are you saying that... Okay, this is an interesting question mm-hmm. that I don't know the answer to. Should people watch Africa? No. Adio? No, they shouldn't. They don't have to. Why would they? Well, people don't don't have to, but yeah. I mean, it's an incredible document. It's the I mean, if you watch this movie, you're not you're not supporting it in the no, sense you're that not. like nobody's going to make another movie. Even like though this. that when it was released on DVD, there was an interview with Jacopetti and Prosperi on the disc, so you buying that DVD probably gave them money because they sold the rights. To okay, it. that's that's bad, but yeah. also they're both dead now. Yeah, they're both dead now. That's true. Um. Uh, but like the question of should you watch it? Well, okay, should is the wrong word, but like if you're interested in it, should you like? Yeah, you can go watch it. Like no things, no one's gonna stop you. Yeah, yeah. Am I saying it should be banned? No, like it exists. Yeah. Like it's done. But like, are you glad you saw it? Uh, no, not really. Like it's fine. I'm more glad that I saw the movie they made after, which is crazy and almost as bad as Africa Blood and Guts, just because it's so out there. And that film is Goodbye, Uncle Tom. Yeah. So you did a loose cannons episode on this, but I mean, I always love an opportunity to talk about Goodbye, Uncle Tom. This was the movie that Jack Petty and Prosperi. So Africa Adio came out, and it was widely accused of being racist trash. Isn't there a famous like Roger Ebert review where he was like, "What the hell is this?" Yeah. Uh, and so Jack Petty said. I'm not racist. In fact, I, I'm going to face those accusations head on by making the most honest movie ever made about slavery in America. But the, his reaction was basically, hey, you you think that Europe was racist? Look how racist America was. Yeah. And they uh, did a Mondo style mockumentary about slavery in America in the Deep South that was filmed in Haiti uh, with the collaboration of the brutal dictatorship of the time. But the the like framing device is so crazy, which is a documentary crew travels back in time to the South. Not just any documentary crew, Jacopetti and Prosperity. That's right. And you, see, you see their traveling wagon <laughs> that, uh, that has their, their name on it. And are filming all this horrible stuff. And I would say it's even pushed further into the realm of like cinematic style than even Africa Blood and Guts was. Well, I mean, the movie looks incredible. In fact, you can see direct visual quotations of it, I think, in Django Unchained, Mm -hmm. which if Django Unchained, which I think is a good movie, took anything from this movie, it's the idea that, you know, the, the, the aesthetics of an exploitation film can shock the viewer and therefore make the outrage of the situation more visceral to the viewer than say the the color purple amistad approach and the thing about goodbye uncle tom is that we've been talking about it in the context of like oh that sounds like a mockumentary a fictional film oh no they were still torturing people on screen well the movie you know to to recreate the conditions of slavery in the american south they basically re- recreated the conditions of slavery in the south so they as i said they're working with this brutal haitian dictatorship they had hundreds of black poor extras who worked for a bowl of rice who at some points they give water enemas to they give water enemas that you know they're all filmed nude with just leering shots of their breasts uh you know there's a scene a really brutal scene with a Jewish race scientist who like uses a pair of tongs on one of the black men's penis. Uh, There are brutal rape scenes, scenes of dozens of black people, you know, squeezed together in cages and and, in ships and and cattle trains, Uh, scenes of people being, you know, hosed down. It's just just brutal to watch, but it's filmed so beautifully with another Ritz-Ortolandi score to just propel you through it. And then the movie gets even crazier because Jack Penny and Prosperity become part of the plot because there's 
a subplot where one of the filmmakers, we know we don't see the filmmakers, we see it POV style, is seduced by a 13-year-old slave girl. A little bit of uh, autobiog- ah. autobiography there from Jack and, Jack and Patty. And then the movie ends. I love the ending of the movie. The, the ending's incredible. It's set in the modern day with uh, some Black Panther types uh, literally shooting up a suburban white family. Throwing in... a baby against the wall where it explodes in blood. So basically what Jack Penny and Prosperio say are saying is, hey, Black audience, look at all that outrage that the Black Americans have been subjected to. Don't you want a little revenge? Let's have a, let's have a race war. The distributor was incredibly terrified that it would be an incitement to violence. And I believe there actually was a riot on the opening night in Times Square. As there should be. Yeah, yeah. Because, oh my God, that movie. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, the movie Pauline Kael had a famous review. It was generally received as uh, a crime against humanity. As it should be. Uh, and it was received as an incitement to race war. Mm-hmm. But do you think uh, a defense can be made of the movie in that there has still never been a more vivid depiction of the atrocities of slavery? Oh, absolutely not. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's That is undeniable. So but that, the movie yeah. is... A singular piece that will probably never be recreated like that ever. And thank God. Yes, thank you. (laughs) But we watched another Mondo film, which was kind of one that was in the weeds for a long time, called The Killing of America. After a movie like Africa Adio, where can the genre go from there? Uh, It goes to... The Death film. Hmm. So Faces of Death, which I revisited half of uh, this week. It has an amazing commentary track with the director of the film. Uh, Faces of Death does? Yes. Oh, wow. Okay, I gotta seek that out. He was just some dude who got a bunch of stock footage and decided, hey, I know what I can do to make a buck. Let's make this movie. That was like the famous Mondo doc when I was growing up that people would talk about like, you don't want to see this banned in 46 countries. It was a compilation of death footage. And I love uh, the intro. It opens with a guy called uh, who calls himself Dr. Francois B. Gross, played by an actor named Michael Carr, who claims to be a pathologist. And he has these glasses that are too small for his head. And he's just come out of uh, an autopsy. And he says to the camera that uh, I've been fascinated by death for my whole career and i've traveled the world trying to understand death here are some of my findings and the thesis of the film is basically death ain't it something yeah so uh look at this look at all this death look at all this death so a lot of it as you said earlier is staged there's a a guy getting killed by a crocodile a guy getting killed by a bear the electric chair scene which is so famous and memorable all all staged but there's a lot of animal killing Mm. that's very hard to watch the movie opens with a or early in the movie, there's a dog fight. And I gotta say, watching it this time, I saw this movie probably six or seven years ago, and I didn't remember Faces of Death having that big an impact on me because so much of it is so stupid. But watching that dog fight, I was really bothered by well, it. Well, animal killing you know? is something that would extend beyond the Mondo film and go into the kind of Euro trash films, like the cannibal genre, mm-hmm. which was a spinoff of that. And there's nothing more difficult to watch or more shocking than that. And that's why the filmmakers kept going back to it, because they knew it would shock the audience. But I was watching this movie wondering, am I getting more sensitive as I get older? Because... Another example would be a movie like a much better movie, Alain René's Night on Fog, which I saw in undergrad and is uh, features a lot of footage of the Nazi death camps. 
and watching it in undergrad with a class at you, you were know, like this is no him. fight club <laughs> yeah basically <laughs> but i don't know it, i don't i didn't remember it having much effect on me because it was like oh yeah you know the the mass graves i've seen that before but i saw it again more recently and there was an image in the film of one of the ss experiment rooms that had a, a bucket of severed hands and I've been having trouble getting that image out of my fucking head. Really? Like, it, it really bothered me. And I think I must just be getting more sensitive as I get older. Well, I just watched The Killing of America, the yeah. other doc we watch. And there's an image that flashes on screen very briefly of Sharon Tate's pregnant stomach stabbed yeah. in the Charles Manson killing. And it was so gross that I was like, ugh. The Killing of America, which came out in 1981... Uh, but was never released in North America. Until just recently when Synapse put it out. It was mostly made for the Japanese market, mm-hmm. oddly enough. It was directed by Sheldon Renan, but the main creative force behind it was the writer, producer, and I guess uncredited co-director Leonard Schrader. Brother of Paul Schrader, uh, writer of Taxi Driver, and a director of such classics as Doggy Dog. Oh yeah, The Canyons. Uh, yeah, and The Canyons yeah. as well. Uh, good stuff. Uh, Exorcist, <laughs> The <laughs> Beginning. I was... Uh, reading about uh, Leonard Schrader in Cinema Sewer this morning, apparently uh, the Schraders, the oh, Schrader they did boys, not get along. Well, they didn't get along, but their uncle committed suicide when Leonard was eight. And then five years to the day after that, their uncle's son, their cousin, killed himself with a gun. And then f- with a gun. And then five years after that to the day, their uncle's second son killed himself. And maybe their Calvinist upbringing had something to do with that. The Schrader boys and their Calvinist upbringing were also regular, regularly beaten by their father. And maybe it's all of this that makes The Killing of America feel less disingenuous than some of the other Mondo movies. Well, I think the thing about The Killing of America is while there is a bunch of new footage uh, that was shot for it, uh, it feels really off the cuff and not staged mm-hmm. like it does in the Jacopetti films. There's nothing beautiful about the film. No. It was actually shot by the cinematographer Jean-Luc Godard's uh, Masculin Féminin. Oh, really? Yeah. And he was famous for being a wartime photographer. It so, captures some incredible footage of, like, Times Square, mm-hmm. you know. And, like, him just following, like, police officers and, like, there's a nasty shooting where a woman, like, rolls out of a house after being shot. Oh, I, awful. Yeah. I should point out as awful. well that I watched the Japanese version, which is... Oh. To- 20 minutes longer because I didn't realize I was watching the long version on the Severn disc. I can't imagine another 20 minutes of this. It's such a brutal viewing experience. Yeah, Uh, because what it's doing is as opposed to, for example, Mondo Kane, it's not comparing and contrasting anything. It is just stuffing gun violence stories in your face. All famous shootings, little shootings, all shootings. It basically says that the assassination of JFK was a turning point in America. And then from that, it enumerates every notable gun murder since then. And a lot of murders that weren't gun murders, like John Wayne Gacy. Yeah, it kind of turns into serial killer territory by the end. There was something I had never even heard about, like the woman that uh, shot at a bunch of elementary school children. Yeah. And when she was uh, brought in and asked why she did it, she said, I hate Mondays. And it's narrated with this... Gravity, like Mondo Kane has this Peter Ustinov narration that's kind of smug and comical. This one is like Dragnet or something. Exactly, that's what it is. It's like a, like James M. Kane style film noir narration. I did go to the English version just to see what it sounded like. Because the version I watched was a very brusque sounding Japanese man who narrated everything. Yeah. I think the movie is flawed. The flaws would be that it doesn't really 
question what are the bigger forces at play here no it's just presenting this information and leonard schrader uh when interviewed about the film said that he wanted to be like a trip where you have no guardrails and you're just thrown right in i think it's implicitly pro gun control and also Mm -hmm. pro you know lock them up yeah also towards the end i start asking myself what do all these things have to do with each other what does for the first half it's fairly coherent uh, yeah, with it's all a, the assassinations and all gun based as well. But then I start to think, okay, what what is what does John Wayne Gacy have to do with it? Mm-hmm. But then you might say, actually, John Wayne Gacy's in here because the movie is saying, giving a bleak message that there's a sickness at the core of America, and right now they're being expressed as gun violence, mm-hmm. but it exists in other forms, and it can't be solved. That's which right. is a very bleak message, but. Watching this movie for the first time in the Trump era, you know, we have more gun violence than ever, it seems. I actually don't know if that's true. Uh, sometimes they say the murder rate is going down, but we, we have all it's these... still present. Well, we've, we have more mass killings than we used to have. It seems every couple of months there's something like the Pulse nightclub shooting, which wasn't... That sort of murder isn't covered in this movie because it seems to be a more recent innovation, mm-hmm. you know, with Columbine or something yeah. like that. Uh, oh, well, they talk about the tower shooting that happened yeah. at the university. Charles Whitman. I That's think. right. Who got on the tower with a sniper rifle and just started shooting random people. Yeah. So, I don't know. It's kind of nice uh, when things seem so bad to just spend a little time with a movie that says things are bad. <laughs> Does it make you feel better? Like, just, it's like, oh, yeah, it, it, things are bad. Well, it's just nice to see a movie that kind of tells it like it is. In and a it's way. also a movie that when it ends, you're just sitting there and you're like, huh, what's the point in getting up? Yeah. Because <laughs> it's so miserable. But... There's also an interview with the serial killer, Ed Kemper, that pretty much is like the climax of the film that Leonard Trader actually conducted himself. That is so sobering listening to this crazy serial killer who would cut off the heads of women that he picked up and sleep with them. Talk in the most lucid fashion about what he did and that like, you know, it's just it's a feeling that he had. There was a funny quote in uh, one of the special features that. Uh, he looked at Leonard Trader at one point and he went, I killed you. And Leonard Trader was like, what? What are you talking about? He goes, oh, I kill everybody I need in my mind. Oh, my God. Yeah. The other thing that I value about the movie is simply all the material that's in it. I I kept being amazed that like, oh, my God, we're going to see this murder. Yeah, because like, it's mostly archival footage yeah. that you're seeing. But there's stuff in here that I was surprised to see was actually filmed, like the Kent State Massacre, or we see George Wallace get shot. You know, I mean, everyone's seen the Zapruder film. Mm-hmm. But but you know that famous photo from the Vietnam War of the guy being shot in the head? Yeah, like, you get to see it on screen in this movie. You, you see it on film and you see the aftermath. And the you think blood shooting out I of his head. I can't believe this was actually captured on film. And whether or not you actually find that a valuable or edifying experience to watch is uh, subjective, but I was fascinated by it. Well, I'm going to say that I actually appreciated Killing of America in ways that I didn't like uh, Mondo Kane and Africa Blood and Guts and Goodbye Uncle Tom, mostly because the Killing of America is not engineering these horrible atrocities on screen, mm-hmm. while Jacopetti and Prosperi are. And yeah. there's a big difference between both of those, right? Yeah. Like they're showing you nasty stuff. But they're not creating those nasty things, mm-hmm. which is different, I feel. And the message that they're going for the killing of America is not necessarily one of pure entertainment, mm-hmm. as opposed to Jacopetti, which that's what he feels like he's doing. Schrader wants and, and he to loves like, punish you. Yeah. yeah. So Mondo movies, they had a very kind of short shelf life. Like Faces of Death had 
five sequels, but they actually just started parodying themselves right up until the end. Although there were a ton of Faces of Death ripoff type things. Like yeah. There was Traces of Death, mm-hmm. uh, you know, death scenes or whatever, you know, stuff, uh, stuff that was a mix of staged footage and... You know, just whatever was on the evening news, pretty much. Yeah, on the evening news, like, you know, the John Landis Twilight Zone disaster. Who's that? Who's that guy who uh, he was a politician who was going to get caught on some corruption charge? And he committed suicide during a press conference. Yeah, we've all seen that famous thing. Like, that would be in all of them. And stuff like that is still being made today, but in the context of like ISIS beheading videos. Yeah. I mean, all this stuff just moved to the internet. Yeah. We're, when you were a kid, did you go out looking for those videos? No, I didn't. Yeah, me neither. We all knew the guy who did, though. Yeah. Oh, yeah. The guy in the class? Who yeah. Was like, they, oh, you got to see this crazy shit. And you're like, ah, why would you show yeah. that to me? Or even like Two Girls, One Cup is kind of a similar impulse. Mm-hmm. Uh, or, you know, to to use a lighter example, Fox with their like uh, world's wildest police chases. Yeah. is kind of in a Mondo tradition, I guess. Guess. Yeah, the Mondo genre just kind of got commodified by primetime television into a more easily digestible chunks. But you're right that it's migrated to the internet where it seems a little less forbidden. Back in the day, teenagers would rent Faces of Death for their sleepover or birthday party and watch it as a dare and it was this forbidden object. But now you can actually watch Faces of Death on YouTube. You can find an ISIS beheading video anywhere. I'm not like lamenting any lost golden period or anything. But it's just like the times change. Yeah. And it it seems there's less mystique around it. That's right. And that's what those films had back then. And I think that the Jacopetti ones, like I said, it's because they're filmed so well that they're very fondly remembered. Well, people don't check out Faces of the Death that often other than as like a footnote. Yeah. Or if they're like they're interested in mono movies, so they force themselves to watch it. All right, man. Well, that was a bummer of a conversation. So let's move on to some happy times because we got letters. I was just glad to get this Mondo stuff off my chest because really? it's been nagging me for so many years. <laughs> like what has been nagging you about it? I, oh, I mean, I've just always been fascinated by it. And it's good. It's good to talk about it. It's good to work through it. You <laughs> so know? you can go home and just knock all your DVDs into a trash pile, just light them on fire, no. rip your Mondo poster from the wall. No, I'll keep the Mondo poster up. It looks cool. <laughs> what, what's, what is the image of it? Oh, it's got like a bunch of little images from the movie, like see a chicken who can smoke a cigarette. You know? <laughs> I mean, that sounds pretty uh, hilarious and fun. I want to see that movie. Yeah. So letters. Dear Justin and Will. I was wondering if you have seen the 30-minute YouTube film Kung Fury. It combines the aesthetic of a Need for Speed cutscene with the... (laughs) Do you have any um, experience with the Need for Speed cutscene? No. Nah, me neither. With the humor of a 12-year-old. I I have experience with that. Ah, yeah, man. Jim Carrey, I think it would be very funny to hear you two talk about, but not because I think it is very good. All right, Kung Fury. Have you seen it? No. I have. It's bad. It's just that kind of insincere, like, hey, remember the 80s? Let's throw a bunch of bullshit on screen. This is why I didn't watch it, because it it had the affect of something that like, yeah, Kung Fury, you don't like Kung Fu movies. I like Kung Fu movies. (laughs) But it's not even like that. It's like, like, uh, remember all the stuff you loved in the 80s? Look, we threw a VHS filter on it and it's covered in CGI. There's like a polar bear with machine gun for hands. Yeah, fuck that shit. Yeah, it's bad. It's the kind of... You know, we're giving you what you want, salesmanship, mm-hmm. that it, it always throws me off. If you want to watch something like that, go watch Manborg, which was directed by Steve Kostansky, which is 
basically what Kung Fury is, but much more heartfelt mm-hmm. in the way that it's presented. And Manborg is actually 60 minutes, almost a movie, as opposed to Kung Fury's 30 minutes. All right. So he also asks one other question. How do you feel about the YouTube film community that's currently growing bigger and bigger? And he doesn't mean uh, Sex Man Films, a favorite of me and Will's. <laughs> I love sex man films. <laughs> and it has nothing to do with sex, no. if anybody's wondering. It's a kid recreating, I guess, the Terminator? Yeah, he does like his little pastiche blockbusters on his front lawn. And the letter continues, I am talking about all the reviewers and all the people who upload video essays about Christopher Nolan films. What fun. <laughs> Are there any you like? Not really. Are there any? No, I mean, um, I've seen good video essays. There are some very good video essays. Um, There's no one maker of video essays that I'm a particular fan of. I've seen some on Fandor that I think are good. Yeah, I mean, the video essays as a kind of delivery system for information, there's nothing inherently wrong with them. I think that what I don't like is either a super glib tone where it's like, <laughs> look how bad this is on his trailers. Oh, I hate that. Or it's the kind of somber Mark Cousins-ish, like I'm whispering this information to you. Well, I enjoy Kentucker Adley's like parody video essays <laughs> where it'll be like the use of themes in Richie Rich. Or the, the family in Liar Liar. Yeah, I, I I think I might like that stuff more than you. I think yeah, it's I'm not a, there's not enough hilarious essaying in those YouTube videos. There was one that came out recently on Neil Breen that I really enjoyed. Was that a joke? Yes, it was a joke. Okay. <laughs> but that, that's the best thing, right? Yeah, is that yeah, yeah. He's like talking about all these things in a way where you're like, wait, is this serious or is this not? Right. And I'm sure I've watched video essays other than that that I really enjoyed, but none come to mind. Well, right I do I do hate those like honest trailer, you know, everything wrong with Iron Man Ugh, and I 20 minutes shit. because it's just nitpicking garbage. Um, then there are things like the nostalgia critic or stuff <laughs> like that, which, you know, I think the nostalgia critic is pretty lame, but I think the appeal of his videos is mostly the fact that like you get to see clips from a movie you grew up with and it kind of prods at those pleasure centers of your brain. It's really easy to make fun of stuff on the internet in video form. Yeah. Like that is a cottage industry. People love that shit. Eh, not a big fan. Does red letter media count as a... Well, I'm not too familiar with work. I've watched your Star Wars videos, which I very the, much enjoy. The Mr. Plinkett stuff, yeah. Yeah, but I haven't watched their, like, half-in-the-bag video reviews or stuff like that. But people that I know really enjoy them. Maybe I haven't watched the right one. Who knows? Yeah, yeah. But they are also very passionate about what they're talking about. It's not instantly dismissive. Mm-hmm. That's what I feel about people that do, like, honest trailers. It's like, what do you like? Like, Raiders of the Lost Ark? That's it. Well, it's not even about the movie. It's about, you know, this is our shtick, and uh, this is gonna get us... This is going to get us clicks, so we're going to do it. All right. Well, thank you for the letter, Elmer. Uh, We have another letter, and this one is from Sebastian. Dear Important Cinema Club. Hey there, guys. I'm a junior in high school, and against my better judgment, I've decided to start a film appreciation club at my school. I started listening to this podcast to find movies to screen when school starts up in September. Unfortunately, most of the movies you talk about are not really suitable for fledging cinephiles. If I start off with Inland Empire, I'm going to scare kids away. Do you have any suggestions for films that are challenging, but not too challenging? Thanks for making such a great podcast. Keep up the great work. That's a good question. Detour. Yes, detour. <laughs> now, it's hard with high schoolers because, yeah. you know. Not even high schoolers, junior high schoolers. Yeah. My, my suggestion would be, like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be pretty conservative here. I would say try Wes Anderson. Yeah. 
They probably like that. It's in color. It's got uh, famous movie stars they know. I started a film appreciation club in college that lasted two meetings Mm -hmm. because I had to write bylaws and they uh, denied my first writing of them and said, you have to go write it again. And I went, this is 30 pages. I can't do it again. (laughs) And the two movies I showed... I don't know if I would recommend the first one because you'd probably get in trouble for showing it, which was Battle Royale. But in this, you know, landscape of uh, like The Hunger Games being a big like junior high book, is Battle Royale that bad now? I don't think so. Also, I would like lean towards maybe, uh, I, I, I mean, it feels weird for me to say this, but like what was up for Oscars last year? Like what are some of the better kind of like PG-13 Oscar nominees? Because listen, we're talking about... <laughs> <laughs> You're really here. putting them like down to the ground. I, you, this this listener sounds very smart. Yes, <laughs> I would almost suggest that pick the blockbusters from other countries that are digestible, like mm. something like The Host. It would be a good one. Yeah. It's a big monster movie. I showed that my second night of my film society, and it went over very well because it's speaking a language that most like early cinephiles understand the blockbuster but it's twisting them in interesting directions and can lead to actually fascinating discussions afterwards or maybe uh, the coen brothers yeah if they've done some pg-13 stuff like the big lebowski or mm-hmm. you know that kind of thing or you know junior high school students now they have the internet they watch all sorts of x-rated faces stuff. Of, faces yeah. of death that's right <laughs> All right. Hopefully we had a few suggestions there. The host, Wes Anderson. I'm sorry. The Coen brothers. The problem is because I don't want to veer too old either. Because I might like say, you know, Terry Gilliam or something, but he's too old. His good ones, right? Uh, You think he's too old? What's the the stuff that we liked like when we were in? I love Terry Gilliam. Like uh, a good one to show them. Brazil may be a little bit too much for them. Mm. Baron Munchausen's a lot of fun, but may skew a little too kiddie-ish. Yeah. God, it's so hard because yes. kids think they're sophisticated too. Yeah, but they're not, right? But they're not. <laughs> that's so that's a, a difficult balance. <laughs> Do uh, I really like John Woo a lot when I was a kid? Uh, he's too violent. Yeah, he's too violent. I like why we're teachers like discussing the Naked Gun. I, <laughs> I, I just saw it on your shelf. The Naked Gun, Airplane, Monty Python and the Holy Grail. Oh, Monty Python and Holy Grail yeah. is a good one. Yeah. yeah, and that may be one that they haven't seen because you know, is it too old? No, I don't think so. Okay. And I think that its humor is very accessible. When I was a kid... All, all of my friends liked it. And the problem, if you show Monty Python and the Holy Grail to a group of people who have never seen it before, all they're going to do is quote it for years yeah. and years. So you better be ready to make that choice. Mm-hmm. And we actually have a third letter. Oh, good job. Important cinnamonation. Oh, and thank you for that letter, uh, Sebastian Sarkozy. Our final letter is from William Perkins. Oh, from Dorkshelf.com. Yeah, it starts, Hi, I'm Will Perkins from Dorkshelf, and art of the title here. (laughs) Free plug for him, I guess. Yeah. First, let me say I've really been enjoying the show. I always come away feeling like I've learned something, or at least get to add a few movies to my watch list as a result of listening. Ah, that's what we do it for, Will. I'm a supporter. We do it for the fans, not the critics. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, like Podmass, who hasn't written about us yet. Yeah, come on, Podmass. I'm a supporter on Patreon, and always get a kick out of your patron-only episodes. People are seriously missing out if they're not patrons. Well, thanks for the plug, Will. Hell yeah, hell yeah. (laughs) I particularly enjoyed the Austin Powers and Kung Pao 
Patreon episodes and both hold a special place in my heart. I'm a little sad that many of these comedy-themed episodes end up behind the Patreon paywall, while the regular episodes are mostly reserved for serious filmmakers and films. This letter is too good to be true. Does he want a favor from us? (laughs) Basically, I'd love to hear more full-length anniversary and comedy-themed episodes in the regular ICC feed, and I'm sure other listeners would too. Hmm. All right. Well, we can talk about this, and that there's there's a reason that we don't do lots of comedy related stuff in the normal feed, which is that me and Will already have <laughs> we have podcasts where we make fun of stuff. That's true. Uh, I have loose cannons. Will has Michael and us. Mm-hmm. And th- when I started this podcast with Will, I'm like, well, Will is the smartest guy I know. <laughs> <laughs> Far from it, and- Justin. You're the smartest guy I know. <laughs> <laughs> and I would like to challenge myself and pick filmmakers or topics that like you usually don't have discussion with people. Mm-hmm. And that's what the important cinema club is, which is the main reason why we haven't done like, um, you know, Ace Ventura when nature calls anniversary. Episode. Well, you know, we do a lot of these too behind the paywall because uh, they're easier. <laughs> yes. We don't have to do any work for them. But, but folks, you heard the man say it. Apparently they're very funny. Yeah. And and enough of them have accumulated now that your five dollars is a pretty good value. <laughs> it is because then you can listen to like what fourteen of these things. Uh, it's going to be seventeen with 17. the episode. And now for my question: Would you ever consider doing episodes focused on more specific parts of filmmaking, such as film editing, cinematography, or maybe even title design? Sorry, I'm a little biased on the subject. Now, this is another thing that me and Will have talked about a lot, and the issue with doing something about a cinematographer is that. I don't know how much I would have to say about it. We would just end up talking about the directors. Yes. Yeah. Other than like the pictures are really pretty. Yeah. But if we have experts that want to come on about, say, title design, well, our door is open. I can't think of any experts on title design. (laughs) If only I knew the guy from Art of the Title. Yeah, yeah. I feel like the important cinema club's mainly auteurist bent is leaving many incredible filmmakers and craftspeople to fall by the wayside. Surely there are enough great cinematographers out there to fill up at least a few episodes. Think of it as a chance to take the accursed one perfect shot culture to task. <laughs> Man, he's speaking Will Sloan's language. Okay, wait. Let, let's toss this idea around a little bit. What if we did an episode with two cinematographers? What oh, if that's we a good did, idea. Like, Greg Toland and uh, either Christopher Doyle or Vilmo Sigmund or somebody like that. Yeah, like more of a compare and contrast and just yeah, talking about their work. And, and, like we can talk about what those cinematographers brought to the directors they worked with and uh because we're talking about two or three we wouldn't run out of things we can move on to the next one hmm that's a great idea let's table that that'll appear in a few episodes guaranteed yeah all right sorry for the long letter guys keep up the great work will p.s when does the loose cannons important cinema club crossover episode happen surely a broad overview of the canons film of for important cinema club listeners is in order how else are you going to keep that will sloan masu kumar feud going <laughs> well uh we've already slotted will to appear on loose cannons he's going to talk about king lear Godard's canon film but it's not coming for a long time <laughs> no because so, they're still at like 1984 <laughs> he may appear in a sequel to that garbage we loved as kids because yeah. matthew kumar Big Will Sloan fan. Yeah. And he's always talking about, like, when can we do another episode with Will? But that's his fault. He's out of the country. So yeah. nothing we can do about that. And I look forward to healing the wounds in our in our relationship. <laughs> I look forward to a more positive future with me and Matthew. Uh, that's never going to happen. All right. And on the Patreon note, this is a summer, as I said a few episodes ago, of a thousand listeners where we're getting a thousand <laughs> listeners per episode we're putting it out to you important cinema club nation i hate that name 
I love Thanks, it. Thanks, Will. I love it. And we can we wa- fucking conquer Poland with a name like that. <laughs> we want you to go and tell everybody you know to listen to this podcast. Can you imagine that sweet quadruple digits that we would get every week? It weirds me out to think that people I've never met have an opinion about me. So, <laughs> listen I, to this podcast. so I don't know. Uh, and at the same time, Listen to our Patreon. Man, let's make this the summer of a... of A thousand dollars. Yeah, exactly. I could use a bit of that. <laughs> so sign up for our Patreon. It's five dollars. This week we're doing Bon Joon-ho, the director of The Host and Memories of Murder, and the upcoming Okja. Mm-hmm. So, you, I mean, you want to hear us talk about that, right? And you also want us to hear us talk about Austin Powers and Kung Pao and uh, last week's, which I thought was an amazing episode on special features. Oh, yeah. It's, we it did not get... One enough uh, listeners for that one ah, who cares? for all the work that i put into it who cares me, me okay me i'm gonna be out on the street if we don't get these patreons <laughs> and on that note let's just thank some of the patreon subscribers that we haven't done in a long time so thank you very much uh jay i'm not gonna say your last name david gabe sam rick miko Tim, Samuel, Jacob, Violet. Oh, whoa, we have a superstar that's a Patreon <laughs> listener. Uh, and Albert. <laughs> Thank you very much for subscribing to the Patreon. We're going to keep doing them as long as you keep listening. So, what are we doing next week, Will? Uh, we are doing... <laughs> we're going to ride the news! Uh, we're doing uh, a-, a man who I would love to see make a Mondo movie. <laughs> Legendary filmmaker Ron Howard. <laughs> Okay, so why are we doing Ron Howard? We actually discussed this months ago of doing an episode on him. We did. And he recently popped up in the news because he took over directing Han Solo with only three weeks of shooting left. And I think it'll be fascinating to go through his career and see the man that he has become. The guy who's directed three Da Vinci uh, Code films. I was looking at his filmography today and I I was thinking, God, I've seen a lot of these. (laughs) How did that happen? (laughs) Are you going to revisit A Grinch Stole Christmas? No. No, there's no way I'm ever laying my eyes on that. I've seen it several times. (laughs) You have? It was just like on TV all the time. That was one of those movies that sitting in the theater as a kid, I went, this movie is bad. The Grinch was a movie that I like waited for for months, anticipated, you know, really looked forward to it and then couldn't convince myself, <laughs> couldn't, couldn't let myself believe it was bad. Yeah. So there was that whole midsection that's just unwatchable <laughs> where I was kind of like, oh, this is, this is good. This is good. <laughs> and I don't know why I'm interested in Ron Howard so much, maybe because he is a filmmaker that is undoubtedly passionate about what he's doing. If you see him in interviews and stuff like that, he started at the Roger Corman school, Mm -hmm. directing a film for him to get another opportunity to make something. And that he's jumped from genre to genre. And like, he's did a Western. He did a 70 millimeter epic starring Tom Cruise. Mm -hmm. He's done like everything. And it's all pretty much middle of the road. Yeah, And and none of them are all that great. Uh, Yeah. But this gives you an opportunity to watch a bunch of Michael Keaton films. Hell yeah. And that's, Really all that cinema's about. You want to get nuts? <laughs> Let's get nuts. <laughs> oh man, this episode's run really long. <laughs> we, but we always have to have an end tag, so... So let's talk about what's on our mind today, which is the trailer for the new Jackie Chan movie, The Foreigner. I mean, this is Jackie Chan finally showing up on the big screen again. Do you think it's actually going to appear in cinemas? I feel like it is. You know, I have my doubts. I mean, it, Jackie Chan and Pierce Brosnan is not exactly a hot ticket item in, in American movie theaters these days. Directed by Martin Campbell, the man who gave us Green Lantern, Casino Royale, 
No escape. Goldeneye. Oh, that's right. Goldeneye. Uh, and uh, Edge of uh, Darkness. Yeah, terrible movie starring Mel Gibson. Apparently a good TV show. Yes, uh, that he directed as well. Featuring uh, Mr. Joseph Donald Baker. <laughs> Your favorite? Joe what? Don Baker. What are we going to do with Joe Don Baker episode? Oh, I would love to. Let's do that sooner <laughs> rather than later, okay? That's right. When did he pass away? Was it recently? He's alive. <laughs> he is? Yeah. You think we could have him on? I would love to have him on. <laughs> But back to um, The Foreigner. Maybe Joe Don Baker's in it. Who knows? How would you feel if you were watching a movie and Joe Don just like sauntered on screen? It happened a few years ago when I went to see the movie Mud with Matthew McConaughey. Oh, that's right. And were you like... (gasps) Well, I saw his name on the poster, so I knew he was in it. But I was very happy to see Joe Don. I mean, you don't see him that much anymore. It's like when I saw uh, George Kennedy in The Gambler, the Mark Wahlberg film, in like a tiny half second. And also, Joe Don Baker, like he's really grown into himself as he's gotten older because he was always a big guy with a deep voice. But as he's gotten older, it's impossible that a man could have a voice that deep. (laughs) Really? It's just uh, uh, the man has unbelievable presence in his 80s. I wonder how healthy he is and like if he can still appear in movies or if he's just not really that interested. I wonder. Um, But back to the foreigner. Uh, We'll save our Joe Don Bake talk for another time. So this is a movie. uh, Jackie Chan plays a Chinese man in Ireland whose uh, daughter is killed in an IRA bombing. It's based on a book called The China Man. (laughs) Uh, I'm shocked they didn't keep that title. And so uh, uh, Jackie is pursuing Pierce Brosnan, the government official who I guess is uh, tasked to the case. Uh, And he wants to get the name of the Irish terrorists who did this. And when Pierce Brosnan won't give him uh, the names, Jackie goes on a one man army (laughs) killing spree, I guess. And I think there's some suggestion that Pierce Brosnan was involved in the IRA at some point. I don't uh, know if the politics of this movie are good or not. Uh, It's going to be probably bad. It's going to be weird because watching the trailer, you're just waiting for the moment for Jackie to throw a punch. Mm -hmm. Like you're like, is this going to be another Shinjinku incident style? And he does. It looks like he's getting Jackie Chan style fights in the movie. Well, there's one thing I know about Jackie these days. It's that all the best stunts will be in the trailer. Mm -hmm. But even so, watching these, uh, I think. Jackie must be just in, in in constant pain all day. <laughs> like we saw we saw Donnie Yen talk once and he talked about how he can't sleep on a mattress because be- his elbow hurts so much. He has to sleep on a wooden floor because he's broken so many bones because he'll like sink into the mattress. But at this point, Jackie is not doing anything on screen, right? Why would he? Like, he's- I mean, he still moves better than I can. <laughs> yeah, he does. <laughs> and um, he's in constant pain. And he has never looked older than he does in this trailer like mm. martin campbell was like we want jackie to be like pure sad face jackie chan and i think that's good because i've seen enough jackie chan movies lately where it's him and a bunch of cantonese pop stars uh, running around i mean there's nothing sadder than kung fu yoga Dreadful. where it's like remember old jackie chan well because he makes all these movies skip trace is another one where it's like he's surrounded by all these like young pop stars who are cops and he's the cop too and there's no acknowledgement why is this one cop <laughs> 40 years older than all of us. And he's got jet black dyed hair. (laughs) He's not to the point yet that he has like the Steven Seagal donut around his face. Oh yeah. Where it's like the jet black, well, I guess goatee. Kind of vaginal. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. (laughs) All right. Well, that was our Jackie Chan update um, for- Stay tuned for the 100th episode spectacular. (laughs) Of the, uh, yeah, the Jackie Chan, we need a name for it. Like Jackathon or- the Jack. Jackathon, hell yeah! <laughs> no, this is our will miming the motion. But <laughs> listen, you, we don't have to wait till the hundredth episode for for a Jackathon. <laughs>
<laughs> this is what happens when we run long.